HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece was brought to you by Roberta's, robertaspizza.com. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. We decided it's high time we do an episode about Mary Jane. Marijuana, things are happening. That's right. This episode is about pot. We're exploring the rhetoric surrounding legalization in New York's recent gubernatorial primaries. And a cheesemonger turned cannabis consultant shares the tricks of the trade. Great. So do you want to conquer the world? Do you want to have hazy eyes? Do you want to, you know, just relax all day and be floaty? And we find out how one exemplary South Carolina farmer is trying his hand at a new crop. Every plant that comes up from seed is different. And so it's... It's learning how the plant grows, how it responds, and then familiarizing myself and my senses with this plant. Plus, Hannah Forden and I taste test the hottest new cocktail ingredient, CBD. So subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts and be the first to know when the newest episode of Meet and 3 drops. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. On today's episode, we have Michelle Dahl of Michelle Dahl Makes, who talks about her 15-year career in baking as a sugar artist and what it took for her to leave her former job as a graphic designer to pursue her dreams. And once again, we're back at Dangerbird Record Studios with Matt Costa, who also discusses his 15-year career and gives a live in-studio performance from his new LP, Santa Rosa Fangs. So sit back, relax, and here's another episode of Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. We talk about food. Try. 
what's between and before us the mystery lies a mystery lies in mystic eyes in mystic eyes Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. That was just Matt Costa, who will be coming at you later today and we're recorded with our partners, Dangerbird, out in Los Angeles. But up now, we have Michelle Dahl. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. You have known Darren forever. It's got to be 15, 16 years now, yeah. Is really that long? I want to say... That's not possible. I've been... I've, I... Maybe 14? Okay. That yeah. sounds a little bit more for you. Right. <laughs> also, I guess 15, 16 sounds like that's not possible. It's probably much more true than the math that I want to do. 1,000 years. 1,000 years. Uh, I want to get to your culinary career, but you started off as a graphic designer. I did. I worked in uh, corporate identity and brand development. So mm-hmm. both project, and it's as sexy as it sounds, <laughs> yeah. um, project management, print production, uh, some design, and actually that's where I met my husband. We worked at the same firm together. And... It was satisfying from a left brain perspective. I got to put lots of things in lots of boxes, but um, it, it wasn't what I wanted to be when I grew up. No, but you, you grew up till about 30. Yeah, uh, before <laughs> I was you, pretty well grown. You were pretty well grown. I mean, some would say that 30 is, you know, an adult. Mm-hmm. Unless you live in, in New York, then it's not. Right. Yeah, most of my friends were married on their first or second kid. And um, yeah, 30s when I, I got married and... Kind of turned everything in and went to culinary school. Uh, I was working during the day and I went at night. But before, we've, I mean, that's oh, sure. a very that's a very quick step. But what was yeah. it? Uh, I think that a lot of people. We we have a friend who, similar thing, had a successful job, good paycheck uh, in the music industry, and just packed it up and turned it in for a set of knives to take a low paying stage job, uh, and he could not be happier. Yeah. He, he, but he had a very pivotal turn in his life that led to this kind of soul searching. Um, can you maybe set the stage for us about wh- what you were thinking and uh, wh- what you went through? Because I think a lot of people now, especially this was 15 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, didn't see it as a viable career. Now people see it as a much more viable career. Sure. Uh, yeah, that's a great question. And I, I tend to gloss that over because that was a dark period of my life. I mean, I, I made a huge change because I was miserable. Um, I was working for a firm. Um, I was traveling constantly, um, having to get behind things I didn't really believe in. And I had just moved into my own, you know, big girl apartment by myself and couldn't afford cable because <laughs> the apartment was so crazy. Um, it was tiny. It was like 250 square feet, but on West 4th Street between 6 and 7. Oh, so amazing. it was, it was, oh, it was amazing. Because you're never really there. I think for yeah. any of our listeners who have never lived in New York, if they say, so, well, you're just not there. You're just, you sleep there, your clothing's there, and then you're just out. Mm-hmm. God forbid you have a party. It's like, okay, you can sit on the bed and you can sit on, you know, lean against the wall over there. Um, so I couldn't afford cable. All I got was public access and Food Network somehow through the, the court. And it was back in the day of Sarah Moulton and um, Ina, and it was really instructional programming. And I couldn't get enough. I'd always cooked. Um, I sold pies in high school. And What was your high school specialty pie? Um, I made an apple pie. I oh. sold it to the teachers for... Latticed on top? Or what are we talking no, about? It was just... It had um, a really thick granulated sugar and milk. Um, I coat the top in milk and then lots of granulated sugar on the top. It was really good. This is like foreshadowing for the sugar artistry to come <laughs> totally later. Totally right. We're just setting it up so perfectly. Uh, but it never occurred to me. I mean, I worked at a pizzeria for four years in high school and college. and, and Making pies? Um, making the dough, making the sauce, making the pie some. I can throw. I can. We worked at pizzerias taking the money. 
Yes. <laughs> they would not let us touch the pies. I think that I got one shot of stretching the pie and they went, no, no, you, you're you so good at counting out change. Uh-huh. You you stay up there. That's important. We it is important. We need someone to answer the yes. phone with a nice voice. Um, so I, yeah, it, it just never occurred to me. But all of a sudden I was introduced to this much wider world when you know Jacques Therese had Dessert Circus on there and I would just come home rush home and watch all these programs and it's like okay I'm gonna find out you know Bobby Flay went to French Culinary Institute I'm gonna go to French Culinary Institute so I went down toured a couple times uh, 9-11 had just happened and it's like you know this is a turning point I need to do something that I, I really care about and I knew you're not gonna make any money you know nobody gets into this to get rich um, and hopefully nobody gets into it to, to get famous. But you get in because you love what you're doing, what you're making. Was there anything that you saw um, on those early days of, of Food Network, any dish in particular, any dessert that still resonates with you? And you're like, I want to learn how to make this. I wa-. Yeah, Jacques Therese did this uh, blown sugar clown. And uh, clowns are terrifying and awful. But it was amazing. I mean, out of nothing, out of this $3 worth of ingredients, all of a sudden he has this giant sugar sculpture. And so I... I was determined to go to a school that, that offered sugar blowing and to learn how to do that. Turns out I'm terrible at it. I still like to do it, but it's not my It's not your it, it, my forte, You, you yeah. now know after 15 years, it's like, <laughs> I'm not going to, you're not going to get there. Yeah. Uh, and you also have a really funny story about uh, Daniel Balud uh, oh, asking right. him for advice. So in culinary school, he had just come out with a book, uh, Letters to a Young Chef. And I had gone to the book signing and he's talking and I raised my hand at the end when it's question and answer time. And I said, listen, I'm. I'm 30. Uh, do you have any advice for me? I, I, you know, I really, I really want to take this seriously. And he laughed. He said, no, it's letters to a young chef. Next question. And I was just like, oh, gutted, completely gutted. And it is, um, it, it, maybe it used to be, but now most of my students tend to be in their 30s and 40s. You get some really young people, but we have a lot of veterans who come in now. And it, it's not, there's not as much of a stigma as it was back then, I think. What do you think some of the myths are that you can dispel of coming into this later in life? I mean, obviously, you have Flynn Garrity who you know, started when he was 12. And you see all these people who like are 23 and can work 18-hour days and have endless energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what are some of the myths that people are like, well, this is what will happen. There's actually not true or, or just a, a misnomer for people coming into it like anything any later career well i think a lot of people come into it with a very narrow view of what it is they think they want to do mm. um so you get people who want to do um want to work the line and and that's really sexy and hard and then they get there and they're like this sucks i get home at four in the morning and i put on 50 pounds because i drink till three you know you can't just go straight home and um but turns out, you know, there's food styling, there's food photography, there's being a critic, there's being a writer, there's being an editor, there's being a recipe developer. There's endless ways that you can kind of, you know, stretch your career into to paths that fit where you want to be for your work-life balance kind of thing. Does that make sense? It really does make sense. So once you got out of culinary school, where did you begin your path? So I... It never occurred to me to do wedding cakes. I, you know, I was interested in it, but I wanted to make candy. I need sugar. I like pâte de fouille. I like Skittles. I like, you know, I want sugar. I'm not a big cake person. And during um, a demo rump, and Israel had come, and he did sugar flowers. And he said, you know, you're good at this. Why don't you come back? Help me carry my stuff to the studio. And who is he? Ben Israel is, um, he's the guy on Sweet Genius, and he's the bald Israeli uh, wedding cake. He's like huge celebrity wedding cake, um, wedding cake guy. Chef, I guess is the word, right? Um, so I took his stuff back with him, and he offered me an internship, which I later found out is very competitive and, and would be an idiot to turn down. So it's like, okay, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And I was there for about three months. It's 40 hours a week, unpaid, but you learn so much. And it was such a tutelage, and he really took me under his wing, and um, I realized that this, is, this would be a great path for me. So I ended up staying for about a year and a half as a sugar artist. I did some baking, but mainly it was like making sugar flowers and this very minute, detail-oriented tasks, but you're sitting all day, and I, I wanted to spread. And for those who are uneducated in the field, what makes up sugar artistry and what makes a good sugar artist? So if you like to knit or crochet, which ironically I do not, uh, you'd probably be good at sugar art. It's lots of tiny, repetitive motions that have to be exact. Um, my first, I think, week at Ron's, I did nothing but make... Uh, holly leaves and my thumb was just bloody red from this little cutter over and over and over again um but i got really good at holly leaves and now i can bang them out really fast but it's um an attention to detail and 
um, aesthetics. Uh, having a graphic design background really made a lot of sense in, in that. How did that trend? Yeah. What were the intangibles of the graphic design background that you think helped accelerate or give you a competitive advantage in your career? Um, freehand sketching was really big. Um, I think for any dessert professional, you know, beyond just wedding cakes, you need to be able to draw what you're doing. You need to be able to communicate and sell it to somebody. And that's such a huge part of wedding cakes is, all right, let me tell you about what it's going to be. Give me a thousand dollars. And, you know, um, but if you can't show them something that looks really gorgeous, even if it's on paper, then you're not going to sell the cake. Is there a grandmaster of sugar artistry? Is there in like the hollowed halls of you know icons and hall of fame? Who who are they? What makes them so great? Um, there's a couple. Uh, Ron, of course, is like the head sugar flower guy, um, and his aesthetic is is my personal favorite. It's very clean. It's not baroque at all. It's very modern. Um, Sylvia Weinstock uh, is a little bit more towards the baroque. Um, Margaret Braun is amazing. Actually, she was on the Throwdown with Bobby Flay. That that your brother produced. Um, she is, I mean, my God, an incredible artist. Colette Peters is also really big. And as far as like sugar art, Awald Nader, I'd say, is is one of the one of the best. And is there a commonality or running thread among these legends? They that... are insane. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> They're crazy. <laughs> They're nuts. They just inhale like you know aerated sugar all the time. Yeah, airbrush right up the nose. Um, no, they're they're great. They're all just incredibly creative, and they're all true to their own design, their own aesthetic. Um, I see a lot of cake decorators. I've trained a lot of cake decorators, and they pick fifteen different cakes, and they want to emulate those cakes specifically. But you really have to come up with your own look and feel. And that's what they, they need to work on. And that's what those people have really mastered. Is you see a Ron Ben Israel cake from a mile away, and you're like, that's a Ron Ben Israel cake. That's it's a distinctive style all, all their own. The, yeah. the elements are just completely unique to them. They're truly designers, whereas a lot of cake decorators are technicians. I, I think I personally, um, you know, I would love to say I'm an artist, but I'm a technician. I can, I can replicate things really well. I can execute them. Um, but I don't, I don't know if my aesthetic would ever be as, as pure and beautiful as, as what they're doing. When you're doing wedding cakes, um, how much of it is, you know, I guess technician, te- well, for a technician and for an, uh, an artist, how much of it is executing the couple's vision uh, versus saying, this is the cake that you're getting? <laughs> I mean, is there any leeway in that? Is the, are, is the couple always right? Is the, or are there uh, some times that you're just like, this is what you get if you're coming for me, and if this is going to be photographed, it needs to be... Yeah. This style. It that's a, it's it's tricky because couples will come to you and I'll even ask, you know, come up to me with your inspiration. What is it you want to do? And then I will interpret it, show you a sketch, and then you have the option of purchasing it or not. Sometimes they're like, This is the cake I want, and they slap it down. And I'm like, That's not my cake. That's somebody else's cake. And I don't feel comfortable just copying it. It's mm. you know, you're not getting this on Canal Street. This is a, you know, piece of handmade um whatever, cake for you. Uh so yeah, it's um it's a little bit tricky. They, uh, you get those rare unicorn clients who just say, these are our color schemes, this is our font. I always look at the, you know, all of their wedding materials, and then that gets interpreted into the cake. You mentioned Throwdown. Uh, for those of you who, who, who have not seen the show, you know, the premise was Bobby Flay shows up and challenges a chef. Uh, to their to their signature dishes or, or signature meal. Uh, it was when uh, you were doing cakes... Um, Darren always talked about how things would change for the businesses the night after the show mm-hmm. aired. Uh, maybe can you talk people through that and, and, and like what the significance of being on that show was at the time before and after? It was right after I had left Ron. So I was brand new and I had put an ad in the knot, I think, with a picture of the cake. And I had a website that had lots of my dummy cakes and stuff on it. So to get that call so soon after entering the field was like... You just won a lottery ticket. You know, is this real? I don't... Well, the call it. wasn't because it was... Darren always uh, got nervous because he kind of had to mislead the person because oh, it was totally surprised. Misled. So he would be... I would watch him on the phone. He'd be sweating and you know, like the guilt would eat eat him up and was like, we're Good. coming to do a special on yeah. something. Well, you're, you're being told it's like your pilot. You know, yes. this is your big chance to get yeah. your own thing. And, you know, I have like a, a theater background as well. And I was like, oh, this is everything I ever wanted is happening. Oh, my God. All my dreams are coming true. No. Um, it was Throwdown with Bobby Flay. And, I, yeah, I was completely clueless. It was the second episode. So the, the see, nothing had aired yet. Uh, this didn't exist out there. So I had no clue. And even when they told me, you know, after Bobby came in and said, you know, I'm challenging you to a wedding cake throwdown, 
I didn't get it. I thought that, <laughs> oh, I just signed up for another show. Everything's going my way. This is great. And a producer came over and she's like, so what are you going to do now that Bobby challenged you? I'm like, I'm going to go home and I'm going to sketch and you know, I can't wait. And she's like, no, it's this show. This is it. Yeah. <laughs> this oh, case. this is this not is... episode two. Yeah, oh, this is, this is it. Oh. oh. And you know, my, I think my face just fell and my husband came over and he's like, you get it? I'm like, yeah, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> but it was still, it was, you know, my God, it was amazing. Um, and before it happened, um, I was just starting to get busy. It was all word of mouth, um, which I think is the best way to do it. And then afterwards, people on the street would recognize me every once in a while. We went home to my parent, my in-laws in Minnesota for Christmas, and somebody came up to me in the mall. We're all walking along, and so his parents were just like, oh, this is so, you know, they're Swedish, or Norwegian. But <laughs> uh, We're going to take a quick musical break, uh, play something from the archives, and then we're going to talk about your teaching and educating the home chef. Sure. Uh, we'll be right back here on Snacky Tunes. the residence chef at Sur La Table. Mm-hmm. What did that entail? Was it amazing to touch every single gadget that ever came <laughs> in? Did you just have the most fun ever or was it so much options that creativity almost seemed hindered by the the multiple things you could you could reach? Well, you definitely get your favorites really quickly. Um, I loved it. I was a kid in the candy store and it was such it was so much fun for me to get back to savory food because I had, you know, Growing up, eating lots of savory food, not just cake, um, and making, you know, working in, in restaurants and on, on the savory side. So to get exposed to that, and the, cl- the classes we taught there, every week were different. So on Monday, you're teaching pasta. On Tuesday, you're teaching, um, like, I don't know, cannolis. Um, so you're constantly having to push yourself to, to learn more and more and more. Um, but as far as the, the products go, yeah, no, you, you find out what your favorites are really, really quickly, and then you stick to them. What are some of the faves? Uh, for nonstick pans, scan pan, and, and I'm not, I mean, nobody's giving me any money or free product, so. You actually have the one person who, like, I tried everything. Yeah. Yeah. I have. It, you're the I ideal. Tried and, I tried it all. And not just tried it for a week, but, like, tried it for years at a time. So I can tell you that every, you know, nonstick pan, there is no lifetime guarantee on a nonstick pan. You've got about four or five years, even for the really good, even for my, you know, beloved scan pan, you've got a couple years. You heard it here. Yeah. You heard it. Myth dispelled. <laughs> but, you know, there's ways that you can take care of it um, that make it last a lot longer. Um, 
I love um, Staub is my favorite as far as Dutch ovens go. All Clad's great, um, great but, um, uh, and Le Creuset, I'm sorry, I meant Le Creuset. Um, but Staub's, Staub's aesthetically and I think um, from a performance aspect, my favorite for casting. Was there any particular uh, tool or gadget that you were, no, I don't like this, and then eventually came around to it just because you had the ability to use it? As opposed to buying it? Um, the strawberry huller is a really silly product. Uh, it looks like... What is that? For it, the uninitiated? Yeah, <laughs> it looks like a strawberry, and it's got this plunger, and when you push it down, this what looks like a sinus surgery thing, blades come out, and they you shove it into a strawberry top. It closes on it, clamps on it, and then it pulls it out. So you have this kind of a little hollow area where the hole was, and I'm like, I don't need a tool for this. I can you know bang through these with a little paring knife really fast, but... They're really fun to use, and they're kind of idiot-proof, and, and yeah, I kind of love them. And what were the lessons that you took from there that you brought into now teaching over um, at the culinary school? Um, gosh, so much. So mu- there's, there's so much crossover. Um, and what I love about teaching uh, at International Culinary Center is that, you know, we, have, we do have opportunities to make pizza or teach pizza classes or caramelized onions. And um, the pizza class is probably my favorite to teach. That's a recreational class that they do sometimes. Um, but, you know, we, we boil bagels, we make uh, pretzels, we, we do all that. So there's a lot, of, a lot of crossover. And one of the things that I thought that you love saying is that, like, you're really big into educating the home chef. Mm-hmm. And, again, I, I think, as you said earlier, there's so many different ways that you can make a living by being uh, a chef. It, it doesn't necessarily be to open a restaurant, get four stars, get the book deal, everything. What, what is it about the education? And what tools do you give to the home chef that you think differ from the professional chef? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, so what I what I love about teaching the home chef or, or why I, I focus on that is because it applies to everyone, um, even professional chefs. When you're making something not to scale for, you know, to feed 100 people, you're going to treat your products a little bit differently. And, you know, how we treat our refrigerators at home is very different than how we treat our refrigerators at work. You're not going to label, you know, the bologna that you opened at, at home. Um, so kind of, you know, educating from, from that standpoint... Um, I think is really great, and it it uh, empowers everybody to make food more for themselves. Not necessarily, you know, I'm not just talking about all organic or all from a healthful perspective, but just from a, a personal satisfaction um, perspective. It makes you feel really good when you feed somebody, or even just feed yourself, and and you're happy with the product. Do you think that people's uh, approach and thoughts on cooking has changed in the last 10, 15 years, especially as you've been teaching with the rise of food culture and that there's been certain misconceptions that you've had to break for the home chef that you never had to really deal with before? Um, the whole gluten thing was kind of crazy. Uh, everybody, a lot of people jumped on that bandwagon and I get it. If you have celiac, absolutely. You shouldn't be consuming gluten, but, um, I think that there's healthful ways for people to include it in their diet for sure. And, you know, maybe a giant flour filled cake is fine in moderation, but you know, that's also a big part of it is, is how to kind of balance everything. You definitely should have that piece of cake, but maybe just that piece of cake and not that half of cake. And is there anything in particular that you would give advice to people who are just starting to, to cook now and starting just to get comfortable in, in the kitchen? Buy my book. <laughs> <laughs> Which is? Essential Tools, Tips, and Techniques for the Home Cook. Um, it was originally called uh, Cooking and the Art of Refrigerator Maintenance. Ooh, I love that. I love that, too. I love it. I love the reference, too. They, yeah. yeah. Um, because that is in the book, is, you know, how to take care of stuff, how to maintain it. Um, so that's my main... Um, advice for people who are either just starting out or just starting to get serious about cooking and or you know outfitting their kitchen is to you know kind of do it like a french woman dresses look for a few quality pieces that are going to last you forever you don't want to go to you know the century 21 and just and fill it fill up your your cabinets with every random thing pick a few items that you know you're going to use consistently and, and that's really all you need I feel like one of the the hardest things to get down is buying the right amount of quantities, especially for people that live in New York who like you could all of a sudden not be home for three nights in the week just by accident or things like that. I always have such remorse when I'm throwing things at a, at the end. Do you have tips for people on how to keep track or modify the way in which they buy raw ingredients? Um, that's it's super tricky. Uh, I have the same kind of remorse. I hate throwing away any kind of veggies or or turned 
turn fruit, but it absolutely happens. Um, where you store it in the refrigerator will help it, the longevity of it some. Where's the best place? Um, down on the bottom, um, in the crisper if possible. If it's herbs, you want to wrap them in, uh, you wash them first and then wrap them in a dry paper towel. And that dry paper towel absorbs the moisture, but then that moisture stays to keep them moist. Um, and you can wrap that in plastic wrap. I always felt like the crisper was just uh, a well, myth. And it depends on the fruit, too. Like, I... I prefer to eat cold apples, so I keep my cold apples in yes. there. But oranges are weird from there. I want my oranges on the countertop, and they're pretty. It looks like someone might get murdered if you're a Godfather fan. But <laughs> I really love uh, a stone fruit that's like right before ripe, where it's almost as hard as an apple. Yeah. So I keep those in the fridge as well, just for like a day or two, just to make sure that they don't go soft or, or yeah. turn. And the, the ethylene that, that some um, fruits and, and veggies will emit can really change the quality of your fruit. So if you're storing your bananas next to your apples those apples are going to turn really quick because there's so much ethylene coming off of the bananas or the you know your avocados or tomatoes you want to keep them all kind of in separate areas you're working on a couple pitches oh yeah um both of them sound really interesting and also really delve into like the current socioeconomic impact of the way that food plays into this world i think one of the major changes is food besides just going through the revolution of being such a cultural thing now everyone sees the impact Mm-hmm. Uh, of it, um, both of them are amazing. I love "Played It Forward." "Played It Forward" is such a clever title too. Yes. So, and that one I'm just attached to the um, the original or the initial pitch pilot. And our original um, pilot had me going to Bamelsa in Peru, which is this um, tiny little town up in the mountains. This woman is feeding 250 kids plus a day on a shoestring budget. She's got nothing. You know, there's like one sink, one one residential refrigerator. Um, so, you know, the, the goal of the show is that a chef um, will go find out what they're doing, um, see how they're doing it, see how they could possibly make it better, and then also set them up with the, the right kind of equipment. And, you know, these kids are, they're being fed, but they're being fed Fanta and, you know, junk food and stuff because that's cheap. But, you know, you could do a, an amazing roof garden supplement with lettuces. You could do the hanging gardens and, and supplement with that for sure. There's so many really cool innovations right now, hydroponics, you know, that, that people could start feeding themselves with. I think when you look at those shows, I mean, one of my skepticism is maybe the, the or cynicism is like, it's great for the show, it's great for content, but w- the longevity of it. Mm-hmm. And do you think that when you go into these scenarios, it's just all they really need to get going is this, you know, five to $15,000 investment, but then it's much cheaper to maintain or you would come back in six months and it's set to the side and they're kind of back to their original habits. Yeah. And I think in in a lot of cases where it's someone who's been doing it for 20, 30 years, you know, it's been working for her. She knows what she's doing. Who am I to come in and say, no, 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 do it this way. Um, So I think it would be beyond just here's an influx of cash and, or, or, you know, products. It's, Let's really sit down together and talk about what you're doing and why you're still doing this and why you're still passionate about it. And then, you know, if we get somebody emotionally invested like that, then they're more likely to make a change. Um, and it, it also educates us into, you know, what changes should be made or couldn't, you know, shouldn't be made. Final question. Mm-hmm. 15 years on, if you could give advice to 30-year-old you getting started in this... <laughs> What would you say? Get better shoes. Um, <laughs> That's good too. <laughs> Why better shoes? Oh man, I, you know everybody goes and gets the Dansko clogs, and that wrecked my hips completely. I ended up at the chiropractor, which I you know I'm terrified of. Um, just I had a hard time walking. It was just really bad for my hips. Try a couple different kinds of shoes. Um, my favorite ones are the Patagonia Better Than Clogs, is what they're called. But I think they stopped making them. So I'm now I'm looking on eBay to try and find them. Just hoarding. Just a closet full of clogs. (laughs) Well, Michelle, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Where can people find you, get your book, check out your work, come come get educated by you? Come see me. So I'm actually at the new New York Cake Academy on 22nd and between 6th and 7th. Um, Completely different than the old New York Cake Academy. We have this great, big, beautiful um, space. I actually just came here from a four-hour cake decorating class. Um, But I'm teaching baking there as well. I have a pretzel class coming up next week. Hard pretzel, soft pretzel? Um, soft pretzel. Well, actually, I'm going to do both because it's just a matter of baking time. But it's mainly the big, you know, lye-soaked uh, Bavarian mm. pretzels. I can't wait. It's one of my favorite things to do. Um, so I'm there all the time. Website, Instagram? Yeah. Um, website's michelledollmakes.com. And Instagram is chefmichelledoll. 
Thank you for coming by. Thanks for having me. We're going to play another song from our archives, and then we'll be back with Matt Costa live from Danger Bird Studio in LA, here on Snacky Tunes. Tonight a blue balloon blew by me on the sidewalk. Pushed by the wind Past the lampposts And the trash cans I turned around To watch it go And it was gone Am I light enough To lift Oh, am I light enough Am I light enough To lift Oh, am I light enough When I was a kid, I used to climb to the top crook of a tall pine In the woods, behind the house, late at night Overhead, a flock of lights passing by Am I light enough to lift? Oh, am I light enough? Am I light enough to lift? Oh, am I light enough? But I don't want to climb anymore I don't want to leave Oh, I'm ready to come down now I can't calm down I can't calm down I'm ready now To come back to the ground I'm ready now To put my weight on a day Oh, help me down now Help me down to the ground Oh, help me down, dear My name is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, a super-duper awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. Hello and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are at the legendary Danger Bird Record Studios in gorgeous Silver Lake. It's always gorgeous because we're in California and we have one of California's born and bred, Matt Costa. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thanks for having me. Uh, raised here, lived here, mm-hmm. never leaving. Um, I, I've left. I've, I've moved to other places, but I was born actually right down the street at what's the Dream Center there off the 101 in Rampart. Were you born in the Dream Center? I was born in the Dream Center, yeah. Really? Yeah. Was your family part of the Dream Center? Uh, no, at the time it was a it was a hospital, like a uh, normal hospital. I don't know. I don't know what the Dream Center is now, but at the time it was a yeah. It was called like Mary Queen of the Angels Hospital. For those who don't know, what the Dream Center is it is a nebulous sort of place where uh, groups of men in black t-shirts will walk around and clean up Silver Lake. <laughs> okay, But yeah. I don't know what else they do. Yeah. I don't know. Um, so, born and bred L.A. Uh, yeah. Do you find that, like, being from L.A., living in L.A., has influenced your entire uh, music career, writing approach to being an artist? Um, well, I mean, I grew up in Orange County, so Huntington Beach and, mm-hmm. and that area. So, you know, just outside of it. And... Uh, but yeah, I think just living in California in general, especially on this record, it's been, um, you know, with geographically and those things, have, um, it's come out. And I grew up skateboarding and stuff too. And so just being here um, in one of the meccas for skateboarding, uh, that influenced my music a lot too, just the music and videos and stuff. What about the videos? What about the visual artistic of skateboarding videos? Because this would be like, what, 90s skateboarding videos? Yeah. So, and what do you bring to that and that aesthetic? Because that's a very, like, OC skate videos are a very niche 
type of uh, approach to making art. Yeah, I mean, because of that, it was like there was a lot though. You know, there was a lot of the kind of when you I would watch like girl skate videos and stuff like that, mm. whether SF and yeah, also yeah. and also in um, LA here and and all the world industries and blind videos and stuff like that, whether it's skate LA a lot. And also the music in those was really cool. I got turned on to like, I mean, that was the first time. I remember like you had to hear stuff on the, the radio and things like that, but especially like in my parents' car or something. But then I listened to, there was like Van Morrison's song Caravan in the oh, yeah. FTC video. And I thought all of a sudden Van Morrison was cool, you know? Right. It's, uh, I felt like that those 90s skate videos were such a great postmodern approach to making art because you would have these like amazing songs but when these like young kids just ripping. Yeah. And sometimes it would just create this whole new type of, of like piece to enjoy. Yeah, yeah, totally. And to show it, I guess, as an artist, would show that sort of you could bring in all influences to what you wanted to create without having to feel that like you had to leave stuff off the table because it wasn't cool or not cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, it just, it just was, you know. There was all, you know, obviously there's all sorts of stuff. There was, you know, obviously like there was, Misfits and Danzig and stuff like that. And yeah, I mean, stuff too. yeah, and then yeah, yeah. I mean, which I like. I listen to that as well. But yeah. then there was also there was a lot of hip hop and soul, and then there was a lot of the classic stuff. And and um, yeah, it just it didn't really it didn't really matter so when it was in there, and then it was associated with the visual. And then it was all. Then I was then I was hooked. You know. So you started getting it. When did you first start writing music? I know you've been doing professionally off and on for about, I mean, not off and on, but on for about 15 years. But yeah. when did you start to dabble? Younger when you were skateboarding or when you were a little bit older? Yeah, no, I just play, I just played music then. I didn't, yeah. And I didn't really play that often. I just, you know, I just played guitar and a little bit and trumpet and stuff like that in school band. But when I was 19 or so is when I started, is when I started uh, trying to write, just like, really digging into songs more like studying whatever just like learning whole songs and thinking about lyrics and those kind of things was there a shift is there always you know is there was there a uh, do you remember a moment when you went i'm going to go after this as something i want to do with my life or was it just a natural progression yeah it was just a natural progression for me i mean i d- i was i broke my leg skateboarding really bad mm. and a lot of my friends at the time you know, we were all getting sponsored and, you know, they were all kind of, some of them were already going pro and things like that. And um, then that's what I wanted to do, but then I broke my leg and I thought I'd be back in like three months or something and keep going. But then it ended up being about a year and two years. And by the end of that, I like, I really had to train myself to walk again. And so uh, riding a skateboard, going down big handrails and stuff like that and doing the things that I wanted to do seemed really out of the question, at least for the time being. And during those two and two years and three years of like basically recovery, and still even now it's not fully back. I guess I could have done better physical therapy and things, yeah. but um, the uh, that's when I started writing songs. And then within four years, and I kind of started doing shows and had some people who were like, you know, I, I just had released some things and people were, you know, excited about it. Friends of mine, and then just I just kind of kept going with that. But it never was like I want to do this for a career. It was more just sort of like I like I like music, and I just want to try it out. I mean, seeing how you've had a pretty pretty good run as a musician, yeah. Do you find that moment where your life sort of diverged with that accident as something that you look back on like this? I'm happy this happened now, or do you see it as something where you're like you found a way to channel like what happened to you into something that making what your life is today? Yeah, I think all that stuff, the development when I was a kid, just skateboarding is just like, just shifted into the shifted into songwriting. Same sort of discipline and same sort of. It's a lot of discipline, like getting up, doing that trick over and over and yeah, over yeah. again. So applying that to music is a great way. To be like, I want to get this chord. I want to hit this timing, right? Totally. Yeah, and I think also too. But there's things that I did want to like, um, that I did want to do different because I remember that. When I was young, it was all just like muscle muscling things and going, 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 mm-hmm. and and then when I when I started writing music, then I realized that you know you can sit and learn you know, and I still do. You'll learn scales and you gotta learn all the the kind of fundamentals of it. Sure. Um, but I realized that you know not not you know not muscling. You can't you know you can muscle a, a guitar part or a song or something like that, <laughs> right. but you have to like. It gets more, you know, introspective, and you have to be more thoughtful with it, and that's when the best stuff comes out. So when skateboarding, I did that. I saw some people who put that approach in skateboarding, and they were always better, you know. And right. then it, it took me to like stepping away from it, 
to see that, and then I started applying that to my, or I've always tried to apply that to my music because, um, because I, I just, I just know that it makes, at least I think it makes for better, better, um, better art. Well, speaking of better art, let's hear a song. All right, I'll try. To, I'll try to play a. I'll try to play a good one here. Oh, you're gonna play a great one. Uh, what do you got for us? Uh, let's see here. This one is a song called Pacific Grove, and I found this drum machine here, so I figured I'd use it. Awesome. I know you've been away for a long time. Feels like ten years or more. It got me to thinking I shouldn't have said all those things I regret even more now. I'm feeling sentimental. Times I'm living for the past. Hold your face before my eyes, but it never seems to last. So let's go back to Pacific Grove when those monarchs come back home. I know I won't make it alone. We'll love and laugh in a tavern when that evening sun goes down and meet halfway in Pacific Grove. Like a bird from limb to limb Wake up early but who am I fooling There's no one next to me And there on the misty street Is that neon light we know Often I've longed for your silhouette Glowing inside that window So let's go back to Pacific Grove Monarchs come back home I know I won't make it alone We'll love and laugh in a tavern When that evening sun goes down And meet halfway in Pacific Grove Pacific great one thanks man better than a good one all right cool I'll um, take so that. after you started playing for a few years and you start putting stuff out when did you feel both like that your career had started and then you were also starting to hit the stride of the music that you wanted to make instead of muscling through that you were like finessing and like curating the songs you were writing yeah well i always um i kind of always thought about I kind of wrote, I tried to write um, 
write um, write songs that I would um, would have to would have to grow into or something. I mean, mm. I'd, so I, I would um, I'd write ideas in order to push myself to like become them, you know, in that sort of sense. I like that. And then... Uh, but you got to man up to the songs you wrote? A little bit, yeah. yeah. And then a lot, you know, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes they're, you're not ready for it. It takes, you have to put them away and then you come back to them. But, Can so, you give me an example? Um, well, let's think about that. Um, yeah. Well, on my first record, um, let's see here. On my first record... Um, uh, there were there was some finger picking songs and there was some uh, and there was also some electric guitar stuff and and I felt I mean those took a while to to write and create it was like about a two or three year sort of process. Gotcha. Um, so during that time I had ideas and I'd be developing them, um, and um, so for when I did a record called Mobile Chateau, which was my which was my third record. That's the first one that I self-produced, mm -hmm. and so some of the songs that were on that, I'd had um, the ideas for a little while, but I just didn't have the right um, production techniques or different things that I wanted to needed to even like hear them back the way that I, I needed to to perform them. Yeah, and so uh, also spending a couple years or two records on the road traveling and doing things, then you understand. You know, just how stuff works in a live situation versus studio situation, all those things. Does that matter to you? As I mean, especially with the new art, the new album, uh, Santa Rosa Fangs, Rosa Fangs, where it's like a concept album, straight to finish. It's mm -hmm. telling us narrative. So obviously, you're there. Are things you're thinking about their studio application and their live application. Yeah. Well, when I did this record, um, I worked it up with. Uh, with uh, my friend Peter, Peter Matthew Bauer and Nick Stumpf. And I think the goal the whole time was to write songs that would just be deliverable really strong live mm -hmm. to where I could go out there with my band and, and just have them be really impactful. Mm. Even more so than other songs where, you know, you're missing the, like, three guitar parts that are, like, weaving together or something. Right, right. And when you just have, you know, when you don't have all those things, you're... And a lot of times that's fine, you know, but as a when you have the idea, you want to deliver it in its entirety. So these ones, for the most part, there was, um, you know, there it was, um, they they worked in probably some of the best songs I think live as far as really having a punch to them. Yeah, I feel that at least when I when I play them on this tour, and that feels really good because after doing so many records, to feel that to still feel that way, it's it's a great feeling. Do you feel that you pull a little of the punch when you're recording it so that when it comes out live, people are like, whoa, this is a whole other experience? Or do you try and pour as much into recording it as you do into the live show? Mm. I think the recording stuff is more just like, um, it's different because you can, you know, it's it's really hard to capture the the immensity of something on a recording, so you have to capture it. It's more of like, I think recordings a lot of times are... Um, they they're all like your perception of uh, of the way it's sonic perception of it you know so if you uh, just because you you play in a room really big and really loud you can mic it up doesn't mean it's gonna sound really big and loud sure. so I mean sometimes you have to make things really small in order to like you know a vocal or something things like that have it sit in the mix where everything else sounds huge but it's just perspective and of how the track sounds um, you know audio, audio illusion sort of sort of thing. Um, and then performance is key, you know, as far as um, as that as well. So I think you perform it good, but um, yeah, those studio things are, are a little are a little different than just when you go live. When you go live, you just want to get in there and like you know you can fill up a room with the sound, and that's you can you can't ever recreate that on a record, I don't think. So um, and yeah. also the actual physical vibrations that you're getting from it. Oh, in the, the room physical too. feeling of yeah, it. Yeah. I love that when you're in a yeah. room and you you can feel the the music like in your body. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. Yeah. Uh, can we hear another song? Sure, yeah, yeah. What do you got for us? This one, um, this one is a song called Sharon, and I'll tell you a story about it. When I wrote this song years and years ago, before I'd written this song, I, I was sitting with a friend of mine, and she came over to my house. Her name's Liz. She's married to my drummer now. And at the time, she had a shaved, she had a shaved head, and I thought I was, I was, 
thought she was pretty cool. Yeah. And she was playing banjo. And then I sat down, I had my guitar, and I was talking to her. And I said, I have this weird, like, tick that keeps going on, like, circling in my brain, sort of like uh, Oliver Sacks sort of thing. <laughs> and uh, then, but I, I hadn't read any of that then, so I just thought I was going crazy. And it was sort of, ran, ran, ran. It was just when I stopped playing music, I stopped doing anything. Whatever happened, I had this, you know, hamster wheel of a sound that was going on in my mind. Ran, 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 and then years went by. Um, well, before that, she had told me uh, she's like, "You should put it in a song," and I was like, "Well, ran, ran, it doesn't make sense, you know. I don't ran, ran, ran. I don't know. It took me a long time to really to try to make something work. And I sat down again years later, and it turned into like Duran, 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 or something like that. I was like, "I'm this is dumb." <laughs> then I sat down to do this record. I'd written one song. I remember it well. It was the first song. And then when I went down to write the second song, um, I started playing my guitar again. And I started going, Duran, 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 the Sharon, Sharon. And it turned into Sharon, and so Sharon revealed herself to me, and then I made her the centerpiece for the record. And so that's how that came about. It's amazing. That's one of those ones, like, you know, I was talking about earlier. Yeah, how is that you, like, will yourself, you man up, you will yourself into yeah, the song that's in your... A sound that for years and years was just, like, phonetically it sounded nice in my head, but I had no idea what it was, and then it turned into something years later. Amazing. So, so that we're going to hear right now? Yeah, this is Sharon. All right, here we go. She's going out tonight See her aquarium friends Amongst the buffoons and the bogots She's strung out again She knows now what she does She knows not how she feels She don't know if she's living or dying Her pockets full of pills And she's colder than the coast of Maine Sharon on a snowy winter's day Sharon, she cut you like she cut me Sharon, it's a new raging on the sea Sharon Sharon, Sharon, Sharon Sharon, Sharon Sharon, Sharon, Sharon I've seen you make arrangements With all the lawyers at the bar I know you're going through those changes Yeah, I know you're going through those changes And I've seen you going through those changes Gone, gone, gone And still your daddy pays your rent She knows now what she does She knows not how she feels tune thanks man good rhythm so do you feel now that you've gotten that tune out of your head does it feel better that you can share it with people instead of just having it go around around in your brain yeah that's why it's called sharon (laughs) (laughs) um so sharon is the uh central character in your new album Mm -hmm. um and uh it's a concept album beautiful story um how did it come about what made you want to do like uh sort of a uh like a whole narrative throughout your whole album. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of the stories um, come from from my life or people who I know and I've kind of tied them all together into sort of her and, and me sort of narrating it. And I imagined it like with this, um, with a, you know, seeing the movie before um, I'd actually made made the record or made the movie. And so as, um, 
you know, I thought about kind of these songs sort of um, being the, the score for it. And I'd come off the heels of doing a soundtrack to a documentary called Orange Sunshine. Yeah. And so I was really, um, I was in the, in the mode of working with visuals and creating things that were um, hand in hand. Um, together, they worked symbiotically. So I just, um, I took that same concept and decided to make this record. And then as it, as it's gone on, then um, the then the story is like revealed more, and and I think eventually I'll turn it into I'm working on writing a screenplay to it now. So kind of doing it reverse. That's awesome. It sort of ties back to the skate videos and the music. And it the, does, yeah. Tying it all together, the songs and the video and things like that. It does. I think that when I was a kid, I mean, I I wouldn't make my own music for them when I started. But, you know, I'd find my own records that I liked, and then I'd get the CD player, the cassette player, and then my VHS player, mm. and I'd put the audio into it, and then I'd get another VHS player and then oh, dub it cool. over and make my own skate videos. That's how you make your sponsor me videos. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, and so now you're just doing it in reverse. I guess so, yeah. Um, and so with the new album, um, it's a very California album. Like, yeah. Do you feel that you've let your Californian like pride and heritage really shine through on this and do you feel that there's a unique story that you're telling about California that that you have that maybe the world doesn't know you know because a lot of times when people think of California they think of like a very specific yeah maybe like a Hollywood story or a San Francisco story or like uh you know uh hiking through the woods in the north uh-huh. are you telling a different type of California story well I mean I'm I'm just speaking from my own experience and people that I've known but I think it's not I mean it is California because this is where I'm from and some of the cities that I name and things like that. But I also think that it can be, you know, it's sort of that place and those memories can exist anywhere, you know. It just hap- mine just happens to be in California and there's the cities that, that come of it. And I grew up here, so that's that's my story. But the funny thing is, is that um, the record before this record, I went to Scotland hmm. and I recorded over there. And, um, and I'd grown up listening to a lot of like British folk music and I'd listen to a lot of like Brit pop music, mm. and so, um, so I had these ideas of going and re- like recording up in like Scotland and the Highlands or something, and oh, recording yeah. these like this music. I, I ended up being in Glasgow, and and I'd recorded with um, with uh, some of the members of Bell and Sebastian, who has a big fan of their them. music. Yeah, I, I love them too, and and um, so it was by it was by no means a. Uh, a traditional uh, Scottish folk record. It was, and I'm I'm happy for that because that's not the kind of record I wanted to make. But I did slide a little bit of those influences in there here and there. But when I was there, I was I was talking with um, Stevie Jackson, and he played guitar on it, and we became close friends. But he was more, you know, into romanticizing the other side of the pond. He was just talking about Graceland and told me more about Elvis than I knew from being over here. <laughs> right. And then I was more into like talking about like going to San- like the apartment where Sandy Denny lived and Incredible String Band and things like that. Yeah. And so, but for that reason, I do know a lot of uh, sort of uh, traditional Scottish songs. I-, I could play you one of those if you want. I mean, if you want to end on that, we can. I can, end on yeah. That. I'll but do uh, it. before we end on that, um, you know, now that you have the album, now that you have this big story, uh, do these characters continue beyond this album? Is this something that you've now cr- brought these people to life through your music and, you know, hopefully through uh, screenplay, things like that? Like, how do you live with these characters that you you create? Do you feel responsible for them to see their lives through? Or is it just like, here's a, a moment in time where you, you've opened a window into their world and then you're moving on to look into something else? Yeah. No, I think that they'll definitely stick around for a while. Um... I mean, the thing was, is that, yeah, it, it's like I've opened the door, opened the door to them, and now they're, now they're in the room. So, um, but the interesting thing was, um, you know, about telling a California story, and within within Sharon and within the whole thing, there's a lot of people that I know that are close, and myself as well, that are in, that are inside of inside of these songs. But it took going to, uh, it took going across the sea to like to come home and really appreciate and write a California record. And so sometimes when I sit there in the hills, I still play my Scottish songs when the mist rolls in just to mess with people. Yeah, that green layer is a good inspiration. Um, Before we go, where can people find your music online? Where can people find you 
uh, keep up on your tour and your travels? Yeah, they can just go to, um, well, I have Instagram, Matt Costa Music. Yeah. And then they can go to my website, mattcosta.com. Awesome. And, uh, yeah, that's those are the, I think those are the main ones. I have Facebook and that kind of stuff, too. So. Whatever, yeah. It all links together. It all links together. Yeah. Uh, well, Matt, thank you so much. Cool. Congratulations on the tour, on the new album. Good yeah. luck on the screenplay. Thank you. And uh, what are you going to take us out with? I'm going to leave you with a, with a, uh, with a California take on a, uh, on a bagpipe tune. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And it's thank called... you so much to Gingerbird Records yeah. Studios. We'll see you next time on Snacky Tunes. Matt, take it away. Sweet. Yeah, this one's called Banish Misfortune. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.